If you've got your Bibles, and I hope that you do, please turn them to Romans chapter 9. Last time we were in Romans, we a couple of weeks ago, we looked at the first five verses. This morning, we're going to look at verses 6 through 13. And so by way of context, I would like to begin our time reading, beginning in verse 1, going all the way through verse 13. This is the word of the Lord. Paul says, I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. They are Israelites. And to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs. And from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring, but through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said. About this time next year I will return and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born, had had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Would you pray with me? God, we ask in Jesus' name that you would give us understanding this morning. I pray for your Holy Spirit to attend each of us as we encounter your word, that he might graciously reveal truth to us. We know that truth is here. We don't bring truth to the text. Your text brings truth to us, and so we ask that your Holy Spirit would aid us in the attempts of interpretation, because we are not here to simply understand your word. We're not here to get smarter about doctrine. We're here because you are our God, and you have spoken to us, and we want to worship you and bring glory to you. And God, we know that you use your word, your revealed truth to us to transform us, to look more like Jesus so that you might be glorified through a changed life. So God, that's exactly what we ask for this morning, that you wouldn't just make us smarter about this, that we wouldn't just gain an understanding of what this passage says, but that you might change us And then you might glorify yourself. God, I humbly set myself before you as one who doesn't understand this kind of stuff without you. 
God, I ask that your Holy Spirit would be upon me and give me anointing. Give me the ability to articulate what it is you're trying to say to us and why it is you're trying to say it to us. So that in all of this, Lord, you might receive the honor and glory that you deserve. We pray this in faith, in Jesus' name. Amen. So the last time we were in this book, in this letter, we covered the first five verses. And the first five verses did a couple of things. One, they revealed to us the heart of Paul, that his heart was broken. He said, I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart because my brothers are outside the family of God, my kinsmen according to the flesh, the, my fellow Jews. They're not a part of God's family. And so we, we, we saw Paul's heart for his lost kinsmen according to the flesh, and we reflected that our hearts for the lost that, that God has put us around should, should likewise be broken over the condition of the lost apart from Christ. But those first five verses did something else. They unveiled for us a crisis, a, a dilemma, if you will. Because these Israelites, about whom Paul expressed such great sorrow and unceasing anguish about because they had rejected Christ, by and large, and were outside the family of God, these are the same Israelites to whom belonged all of these things, the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises, and yet they were no longer God's children. So do you see the crisis there? It seems as though God set them apart to be his chosen people that he elected them to be his, to belong to him, and now they are not. Do you see the crisis there? This becomes a crisis for us. Paul has just spent the better part of chapter 8 telling us about the great truths that are ours in Christ. And, and revealing to us, seeking to encourage us that we can find assurance and peace in the biblical truth that God is sovereign in our salvation. He said, for those whom he foreknew, God foreknew, he also predestined. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. He said, who shall bring a charge, any charge, against God's elect? Those whom God has elected, who will bring a charge against them? It is God who justifies who is to condemn. And, and then the closing truth, the closing promise at the end of chapter 8, that nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. These are incredible life-transforming truths that we celebrated together, that Paul gave us in chapter 8 to give us an assurance of our salvation. And we found great assurance and certainty that those whom God elects to salvation will be saved. But our confidence 
in those truths and those promises in chapter 8 come crashing down if he has backed out of his deal with Israel. So what is the deal? If God elected Israel, if God chose Israel to be his chosen people, and now Israel was no longer his chosen people, then how can we find any assurance whatsoever in our election, in God choosing us to salvation? This is a grand crisis for us. The assurance of our salvation in chapter 8 is now in jeopardy because of the crisis he unveils at the opening of chapter 9. And so he begins to address that crisis at the outset of verse 6. He says, but it is not as though the word of God has failed because not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. That right there, that statement in verse 6 is the central theme for the remainder of chapter 9. Everything that comes after that particular verse is founded on that particular verse. It is not as though the word of God has failed, because not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. The crisis presented in, in, in the first five verses. Israel, the chosen people of God, are no longer the children of God. Those who apparently have received the promises are no longer under the promises. So what gives? What gives? Has God broken his promise? Has he nullified his covenant? Has he failed to keep his promises with Israel? And if so, then how can we have any confidence whatsoever in our election and our adoption that he talked about in chapter 8? That's the crisis, and the crisis is addressed head on in verse 6. It is not as though the word of God has failed. And so Paul begins to launch into this justification of God. It's known as a theodicy, the justification of God. And this is a theme that's going to take us through this entire section. We talked last week, launching into chapter 9. This is a whole new section of the letter that goes from chapter 9 to the end of chapter 11. The final doctrinal portion of this letter before he launches into the practical portion in chapter 12. And one of the underlying foundational themes of this section is the justification of God. It is not as though the word of God has failed, Paul says. Later in chapter 9, he's going to say in verse 19, What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. In chapter 11, verse 1, he will say, I ask then, has God rejected his people? He says, by no means. Paul is saying the same thing in all three of those verses. Essentially, that God's word and God's promises and God's covenant have not failed. Fundamentally, categorically, end of the story, they have not failed. And he is not unjust in his condemnation of Israel, and he has, re not, he has not rejected his people, even though it certainly seems that way, because at this point when Paul is saying this, the vast majority of the Israelites had rejected Christ and were accursed and cut off from Christ and, not were, a part of, and were not a part of the family of God. And so Paul says, no, the word of God has not failed. 
God is still a promise keeper. He is still a covenant-keeping God. The word of God has not failed. It is still trustworthy. And we can still count on God to be faithful to keep his word. And that is good news. It's very good news. But let's be honest and admit that it sounds very empty and hollow unless Paul gives us some sort of explanation as to how the word of God could not have failed. How could it not have failed, right? If Israel is God's chosen people, and if God made promises to Israel that they will always be his people, and now they're not his people, then how could the word of God have not failed? The answer is set before us. The crisis is resolved in the second half of verse 6. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. That's the resolution to the crisis, and it's foundational for everything that comes after this, not just in chapter 9, but in chapter 10 and 11. And so we're really going to have to wrap our mind about what he means when he says not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, because this is going to extend for us through the remainder of our look through this first half of the book of Romans. To put Paul's resolution of the crisis in no uncertain terms, the reason why the word of God has not failed and the promises of God has not failed and the covenants of God have not failed, even though he gave them to Israel, the reason they have not failed is because not all Israel is Israel. Not all Israel is Israel. So in these next seven verses that we're going to look at this morning, Paul is going to explain to us that... (laughs) That there are two Israels. There's an ethnic Israel, a natural, national, physical Israel, but there's also a spiritual Israel, a true Israel. And they are not one and the same. There is an ethnic, national, natural Israel, but within that there is a smaller group, a remnant as he will call it, as he goes on in chapter 9, 10, and 11. He will refer to it as a remnant Even in the Old Testament, he referred to as a remnant. There's a smaller group within that ethnic, national, natural Israel that is a spiritual, true Israel. And that's what he's going to unpack for us in this passage. To summarize the main point, the main teaching of this passage that we're looking at this morning, we can can affirm four statements. So let me give you these four statements, and then we'll seek to unpack what it is that Paul is telling us. First of all, we can say, statement number one, God's word and God's promises have not failed. We've already said that. He said it explicitly in in verse six, first half. The word of God has not failed. We must accept that. This is the word of God telling us that the word of God has not failed. His promises are still valid. Even though it seems like they have failed, because the vast majority of Israel is outside the family of God. The word of God has not failed. Second statement, his word has not failed because not all Israel is Israel. That's going to be his fundamental resolution to this crisis that we really need to unpack in these verses. And he's going to give us two examples from the Old Testament to justify his conclusion that not all Israel is Israel. He's going to talk about the example of Abraham's sons, Isaac and Ishmael, and he's going to talk about the example of then Isaac's sons, Jacob and Esau. But his word does not fail because not all Israel is Israel. Third statement, God's promises were made to true Israel and they are still valid. They're still intact. 
So he's, so he's going to tell us there's a true Israel, and then there's an Israel that's not a true Israel. And God's promises were made to true Israel, and those promises are still valid, and they're still intact. And so consequently, the fourth statement, because God's word and God's promises have not failed true Israel, then we can have confidence in his promises made to us, which is going to take us back to chapter 8 and allow us to have that confidence and that peace and that assurance that God is sovereign in our salvation, and his promises made to us are true and lasting, and we can have confidence in that. That's what we're going to see in this section. So look again with me at verse 6. It is not as though the word of God has failed, because not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. Not all who are descended. So there's those who are descended from Israel, and then there are those who belong to Israel. And they're not one and the same. It's, it's, it's like saying... Not all those who are Israeli descendants belong to Israel. It seems silly, doesn't it? It seems ridiculous. It seems like saying not all American citizens belong to America. But we can't make that equivalent because when we read Scripture, what we see is that Israel has both an ethnic, natural identity, but it also has a spiritual identity. And Paul is drawing a very stark distinction here, and he does so by the use of these two examples from the Old Testament. So let's look at the first one. The first example is the example of Abraham's sons, Isaac and Ishmael. Let's read verses 7 through 9 and seek to understand this example and what Paul is drawing from this. He says, And not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said. About this time next year, I will return and Sarah shall have a son. And so Paul is using this example again to teach us that not all Israel is Israel. There's these two aspects of Israel. There are these two entities Ethnic and spiritual, natural and spiritual. And he's using the example here to teach us this. And he does this by making two broad statements and backing each of those statements up with an Old Testament quotation. So let's look at each of those statements. The first is found in verse 7. And the statement is this. Not all of the offspring of Abraham are the children of Abraham. Now, before going any further, again, that sounds silly to say, right? Not all the offspring of Abraham are the children of Abraham. Now, if you were to say that to me, I would say, no, that's not true. All of my offspring are my children. But again, we've got to remember, when we're talking about the promise made to Abraham and the nation that he would make through Abraham, there is a natural, national, ethnic entity, and there is a spiritual sense in which we look at this. The Old Testament support that he gives to this statement is Genesis 21, verse 12. Let me read that, that verse to you. But God said to Abraham, Be not displeased because of the boy and because of your slave woman, which is Hagar. Whatever Sarah says to you, do as she tells you, for through Isaac shall your offspring be named. Now the word for offspring here, both in the Greek in Romans 9 and in the quotation from Genesis chapter 21 in the Hebrew 
In both of those cases, the word that is translated as offspring is the word for the seed of Abraham. That's why the King James translates it, the seed of Abraham. So we're talking literally about his seed. And so Paul says that there is a natural seed. There, there, there is a natural seed, which includes everyone that comes from Abraham's natural seed. That includes Isaac, that comes from Abraham's natural seed through his wife, Sarah. But it also includes Ishmael, who comes from Abraham's natural seed through Sarah's handmaiden, Hagar. It includes both of them. But there is also a spiritual seed, Paul is telling us, which while it does include all of those who are descended through Isaac, it does not include those who are descended through Ishmael. That's what the quote from Genesis 21 means. Through Isaac shall your offspring be named. There, the word for offspring refers to this spiritual seed from Abraham. Not just the natural seed, but the spiritual seed from Abraham. Perhaps a reminder of the story of Abraham and Sarah would help at this point. We remember that God made a promise to Abraham made a covenant with Abraham early on. And his promise was that I'm going to give you a son, God says. And, and this son is going to be a miracle because, Abraham, you're an old guy, and your wife is pretty old as well, and she's barren. So this is going to be a, a miracle child. And through this child, through this son, I'm going to make him into a great nation. And, and those people are going to be my people. And through his people, God will bless the nations. Now, the fulfillment of this prophecy was Isaac, whom God formed into a great nation, a great people, the Jews. And from that people, God would bring his one and only son, Jesus Christ, who would die on a Roman cross so that all those who place their faith and what Jesus did on the cross as their only hope for rescue from what we all deserve, they might be given the righteousness of Jesus and forgiven their sins because Jesus paid for it. And thereby, he would become a blessing to all nations as the good news of that gospel is preached to all nations. But before we see the fulfillment of that prophecy in Isaac, we see Abraham and Sarah taking matters into their own hands. They have this crisis of faith. They think, God has made this promise to us. A promise that he's going to give us a son. And this is no ordinary promise. Because he says, it is through this son that I'm going to bring about a people through whom I would bring my son, through whom I would make a way for lost mankind to be reconciled to the father. So this promise is a big deal. This is not just a promise that we're going to have a kid. This is a promise of the means by which God is going to save mankind. This is a big deal. And honey, I am an old guy. I'm 85 years old. You're not so young and spry yourself. You're 75. You can't have kids. You're barren. And so perhaps we need to help God out here. Maybe we need to help God out of this predicament that he's put himself in by making this promise to us. Never a good idea to try to help God out of his pickle. Just let God work it out. But they don't. 
Instead of trusting God, they take matters into their own hands. They decide to use Hagar, Sarah's Egyptian handmaiden, non-Jew, Gentile slave. And they decide to use her as a surrogate. And so Abraham gets her pregnant. She has a son. They name, his, they name the boy Ishmael. And they conclude, we have helped God out of his pickle. We did it. And God says, no, you didn't. God says, no, Abraham. The nation that I'm going to make is not going to come through something that you caused to happen. It's not going to happen because of just your physical seed. That's not the point, Abraham. It's going to be something that only I can do. It's going to be a divine miracle. And so, back away from that story for a second. We, 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 we see here what Paul is trying to do here. He's beginning to strip away any confidence that we might have in our human works to have any merit whatsoever for our being selected unto salvation. None whatsoever. It is not something that we cause. It is only a miracle that God performs. God says that not all who are descended physically from Abraham's natural seed are the children of Abraham spiritually. Only those who have been made alive spiritually by a divine and spiritual miracle of God are the children of Abraham, true children of Abraham. So we take that thought back to chapter 8. Those whom he foreknew before the foundation of the world, he also predestined and called and justified and glorified. And who can bring a charge against God's elect? Because it isn't because of man that you are elected. It is solely and freely on God's choice. It is because of a miracle of grace that God performs. Just like with Isaac. The second statement that we find comes from verses 8 and 9. And it is this. The children of the promise are the children of God, not the children of the flesh. Now, it's saying the same thing, but he goes a little bit further in verses 8 and 9. And he uses now, as his Old Testament support, a quote from Genesis 18, verse 10, where it says this, The Lord said to Abraham, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him. And the and the passage goes on to say that she started laughing about it because it was just utterly ridiculous. But that was, <clears throat> excuse me, that was God's promise to them. That was, the God, that was the promise that God made to Abraham. Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. Now, when, when God said this, she already had a son. It was Ishmael. It was her son. But it was her son, through them taking matters into their own hands, it was, the, it was the son of the natural seed of Abraham, but it was her son. And so this was not referring to Ishmael because he, he says, when you return a year from now, you're going to have a son. And it's not Ishmael. It's not the child of the flesh. It's not the child just according to the natural seed. But Sarah, you shall have a son. 
You are the one who, are, who is going to get pregnant yourself, and you are going to give birth to a son, and it's going to happen within a year. And it was God's promise to them. And here's what Paul is saying in using this example here. The children of God are the children of God not because they are children of the flesh. Instead, they are the children of God because of God's promise. God makes the promise, God says it, and it happens. Now again, we take that thought back to chapter 8. God has promised, all those who come to me in faith, I will keep to the end. And if God is for us, who can be against us? Remember that? Who can be against us? Nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. And we can find great confidence in those truths because they are God's promises to us. And his promises still stand because his promise to Israel was made to true Israel, not natural Israel, not ethnic Israel, not not Israel according to the natural seed of Abraham, but Israel according to the promise of God. So that's the example of Abraham's son. And the bottom line is this. Both of Abraham's sons, Isaac and Ishmael, were his sons according to his natural seed. But it was through Isaac that the promised people of God would come. So belonging to God's family doesn't have anything to do with who we are or what we do, but it has everything to do with God giving the miracle of new life. And it has everything to do with his promise. It doesn't have anything to do with something man did. So Paul then includes this second example of how not all Israel is Israel. Again, that's the underlying resolution to the crisis the crisis is it seems as though God's God's word has failed it seems as though he's broken his promises and Paul says nope that's not true his promises are still intact because not all Israel is Israel first example Abraham and his sons second example Isaac and his sons Jacob and Esau now just as with the example of Abraham's sons, Paul is going to use this example to teach us about these two Israels, but he's going to take it a step further with this example. And he's going to dive into talking about how, about how God sovereignly chooses who will be a part of that spiritual, true Israel. So let's read those verses, verses 10 through 13 again. And not only so, Paul says, But also, when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated." So let's remind ourselves here of the historical setting first before we seek to unpack this. Rebekah was the wife of Isaac, whom we just talked about, was the child according to the spiritual seed of Abraham. So now we're talking about Isaac's kids. And Rebekah and Isaac have twin boys. They have twin boys, Jacob and Esau. And in God's divine and sovereign wisdom, according to the story, he chose Jacob over Esau. Esau was born first. Remember the story. He came out first and Jacob was holding his his heel, right? 
Esau was born first. He had the rights of the firstborn. But God passed over him, and he chose Jacob instead. He sovereignly, divinely chose Jacob instead. It would be through Jacob that God would bring about his fulfillment of the promise that he made to Jacob's grandfather, Abraham, to make a great nation and be a blessing to all nations. And the point of this second example, not just as Paul uses it in Romans 9, but the actual events of, of, of Isaac and Rebekah and the twin boys, the point of even that story, not just in the example, but in that story in Genesis, the point of it is to teach us about God's completely sovereign, completely free, and completely unconditional choice of Jacob over Esau. And by Paul's use of that example, it is to teach us about God's completely sovereign, completely free, and completely unconditional election of us unto salvation. And every phrase of this passage serves towards that end. So I want to look at four phrases in particular that are going to show us this in the passage. First of all, in verse 10, he says, Rebekah conceived children by one man. Now, why does he use those words? Well, in the previous example, someone might be able to say, well, of course, of course Isaac was chosen over Ishmael. Her mom, his his mom was a a Gentile. Ishmael's mom was was a non-Jew. So, of course, God would choose Isaac over Ishmael. That just makes sense. But with the example of Jacob and Esau, that same objection cannot be used here because these are twins. Both of these guys have the same mom and the same dad. Rebekah conceived them both by one man. Every one of those words seeks to show us that, that Hebrew lineage is out the door here. God's choice of Jacob over Esau has nothing to do with their parents because they got the same parents. It has nothing to do with their familial connection and their lineage because they have the same mom and they have the same dad. And so we can toss that out as a basis for God's free choice of Jacob over Esau. Secondly, look at verse 11. In the first part of verse 11, Paul says, Though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad. So, When he said this, when he said the older will serve the younger, signifying that God had chosen the younger, Jacob, to be the one through whom he would fulfill his promise to bring about a great nation, not Esau, when he said those words to Rebekah, the guys were still in the womb. They had not even been born yet. They hadn't done, as as Paul said, they hadn't done anything good and they hadn't done anything bad. Even though they struggled together, they wrestled together in the womb, it says. They hadn't done anything good or bad. And so morality could not be a basis for God's choice of Jacob over Esau because he hadn't done anything good or bad, neither had Esau. Thirdly, Paul says at the end of verse 11, he says, it's not because of works, but because of him who calls. And in other words, God's election of Jacob to be the child of promise instead of Esau was not because of works, but because of God who called him to be thus. 
Now, why is this particular phrasing significant at the end of verse 11? He's already told us at the beginning of verse 11 that it's not based on works because they're still in the womb. They hadn't done anything good or bad, and so it can't be based on morality. But now he adds explicitly, not because of works. What Paul is conveying in this phrase is that God's free election of Jacob over Esau is not because of works for two reasons. Number one, they're still in the womb and they hadn't done anything good or bad. But number two, God is not looking forward into Jacob and Esau's life to see how they're going to live their life. And based on his foreknowledge of how they're going to live and what they're going to do and how faithful they're going to be, that God is going to select Jacob over Esau. He says, no, it's not based on any works, either in the womb or out of the womb. It's not based on anything that they do. God is not, according to his foreknowledge, though he has the ability to do so, he's not looking forward into Jacob's life and saying, oh, okay, Jacob turns out better, so I'll select him to be the one through whom I'm going to bring my promise. No. We go on in the story, we know that Jacob's the one who swindles his brother out of his birthright. He's not a saint. But Paul says, even if he was, that is not the basis for God's free and sovereign and unconditional selection of Jacob over Esau. That is not the basis for it. So Paul's whole whole point here, by using these examples, is to tell us that there is absolutely no confidence that we can put in anything about mankind that in any way limits or constricts God's free and unconditional selection of Jacob over Esau or us unto salvation. Instead, he says it's not because of works, but because of him who calls. God's selection of Jacob over Esau is not based on Jacob's good works and Esau's bad works or vice versa, but based simply and solely on his calling that he sovereignly and unconditionally puts on Jacob instead of Esau. It's according to his sovereign plan. It's according to his perfect will. His whole point here in using these examples is to strip away any confidence that we might have in our own self-determination. Paul would tell us we are not self determined beings only God is self-determining that's what makes him God but more than that he's stripping away anything about us anything we do anything we think any any familial advantage that we might have that would in any way cause us to think that we limit or constrict God's free and sovereign An unconditional choice. Why did God choose Isaac over Ishmael? Because he wanted Abraham to know. And by Paul's use of that example, he wants us to know that his determination of who is going to be natural ethnic Israel and who is going to be spiritual true Israel is based solely on a miracle of God and the promise of God. Why does he choose Ishmael? Jacob over Esau, even though Esau was born first and he has the rights of the firstborn. Why did he choose Jacob over him? 
It wasn't because of any human characteristic. It wasn't because of any human advantage. It wasn't because of any human work on their part or action on their part or any human distinction whatsoever, but simply because of his sovereign and free election of Jacob over Esau. And that brings us to the fourth statement in this passage that Paul uses to teach us about God's free election and free choice of Jacob over Esau, found in verses 12 and 13. In those verses, Paul gives us two quotes from the Old Testament. The first that we've already mentioned from Genesis 25, when God says to Rebekah, the older will serve the younger. And we noted that that was while they were still in the womb. And so his selection of Jacob couldn't be based on anything that they had done because they hadn't done anything. But I want us now to focus on the second quotation where he says at the end of this passage, Jacob I love, but Esau I hated. Why does Paul say that? It's a quote from Malachi. Why does Paul use that quote here? Church is the part of God's word. We must seek to understand what it is that he's saying. So in order to help us with that, I want to encourage you to turn to Malachi. The last book in the Old Testament is not hard to find. Malachi chapter 1. I want to look at the first four verses. What was it that Paul saw in this quotation from Malachi, from the prophet Malachi? What was it that he saw here that causes him to think, you know what, this is going to help me communicate God's free choice of Jacob over Esau? And consequently, it will help me to explain to those who are reading this letter in Rome how God's election of some to salvation is completely free and based on nothing other than himself. It's not based on any human distinction. What was it that Paul saw in this Malachi quotation that says, I need to use this to help me communicate this truth? Follow along in your copy of the scriptures as I read the first four verses of Malachi 1. The oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord. But you say, Israel says, how have you loved us? God's response, is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. I have laid waste to his hill country and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. If Edom says we are shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins, the Lord of hosts says they may rebuild, but I will tear down. And they will be called the wicked country and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. What does it mean? When then Paul says, Jacob I love, but Esau I hated. We can easily grasp the first part. We know the way in which God demonstrated his love to Jacob. But what do we do with his hatred of Esau? How does that fit within what we know about the nature of God? We're told in 1 John that God is love. Jesus himself said that God loves the world in John 3.16. So how are we to understand God hated Esau? 
very strange, seems to defy what we know to be the nature of God. For this reason, some Bible scholars have concluded that the word hate here simply means loved less. That God loved Jacob and God loved Esau, but he just loved him less. Church, I would submit to you that after reading the context of this quote in Malachi chapter 1, it can't mean loved less. He said, I've laid waste to his hill country and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. And when Edom, Edom is another word here for Esau, when Edom says we will rebuild, the Lord says they may build, but I will tear down and they will be called the wicked country and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. It's not the language of loved less. So how are we to understand Esau, I hated. What does it mean? I think to understand that word hate in verse 13, we need to not assume our understanding of what it means that Jacob I have loved. What is the way in which God showed his love toward Jacob? How are we to understand and come to grips with his love of Jacob? It wasn't so much about his emotional affections being stirred to feel something warm and fuzzy toward Jacob. Instead, God's love of Jacob was a commitment on his part to sovereignly and freely select and choose him as his own. That's how we know that God loved Jacob. Conversely, then, God's hatred of Esau is best understood in light of the opposite of God showing his love to Jacob. God shows his love to Jacob by choosing Jacob. God demonstrates his hatred toward Esau by not choosing Esau. God loved Jacob by choosing him. His selection of Jacob over his brother was not, again, was not based on anything about Jacob himself or about what Jacob would do and become. And his non-selection of Esau was not based on anything about who Esau was or what he would do. Both his election of Jacob and his non-election of Esau were based solely and completely on God's unconditional and sovereign choice. God's hatred of Esau is seen both passively and actively. Passively, we see God in order to display his sovereign, unconditional grace. He passes over Esau and selects Jacob, not because of anything worthy in Jacob, but simply according to his divine and sovereign will. And then actively, As he passes over Esau, he gives him over to his wickedness. And he hates Esau's wickedness forever, he says. That's what Paul is teaching us in this passage. Now before we conclude by looking again at verse 11, I am compelled at this point to make some remarks that in large part, we will cover in greater depth as we continue to make our way through chapter 9. But I think it's important at this point to at least mention these. 
The first redirect, two redirects. First of all, God's free and unconditional election of some to salvation does not in any way eliminate or diminish the necessity of faith. Not in any way. Ever since chapter 3 of this letter, Paul has been arguing for justification by faith in Christ alone. This doesn't change that whatsoever. Even though this passage here in Romans 9 is teaching us about God's free and sovereign and unconditional election of those unto salvation, this does not in any way nullify the necessity of faith for justification. We can say it this way. While God's election of us to salvation is unconditional, our justification is not unconditional. Our justification is conditioned. It is conditioned on faith in Christ alone. And we cannot read Paul's letters and conclude otherwise. Faith in Jesus Christ is a necessity. God's election of some to salvation is completely free and unconditional and not based on anything other than himself. But our faith in Jesus Christ as our only hope to be reconciled to this God is absolutely, positively still a necessity. Douglas Moo, in his revered commentary, puts it much better than I can. So let me just read you his words. He says, I can only reiterate that the introduction into this text of any basis for God's election outside of God himself defies both the language and the logic of what Paul has written. The only logical possibility then would, be, would, would seem to be to reverse the relationship between God's choosing and faith. As Augustine stated it, God does not choose us because we believe, but that we may believe. Listen to this. This way of putting the matter seems generally to be justified by the passage and by the teaching of Scripture elsewhere, but it comes perilously close to trivializing human faith, something that many texts in Romans and in the rest of the New Testament simply will not allow us to do. We need perhaps to be more cautious in our formulations and to insist on the absolute cruciality and meaningfulness of the human decision to believe at the same time as we rightly make God's choosing of us ultimately basic. Such a double emphasis may strain the boundaries of logic. It does not, I trust, break them or remain unsatisfyingly complex but it may have the virtue of reflecting Scripture's own balanced perspective. I like the way he puts that. So that's the first redirect that I have for you. The second is similar, but it is this. God's non-election of others unto salvation does not eliminate or diminish in any way man's accountability for their sin. Just because God chooses others and doesn't chooses some and doesn't choose others doesn't make God unfair. This is what Paul is going to launch into in the next part of chapter 9. Again, as we mentioned earlier, the miracle is not that God has chosen some and not others. The miracle is that he has chosen any. That is the display of God's amazing grace. 
God passing over Esau to choose Jacob does not mean that God is condemning an innocent Esau. It doesn't mean that. If Esau is condemned, it will be because of his sin and his unbelief. It will be because he deserves judgment, just as we all do. And he will be accountable for his sin. He will be accountable for his unbelief. Now, if those two statements seem contradictory, they are so only because of our limited mind to be able to comprehend the unsearchable wisdom of God. John Piper said it this way, how God renders certain the belief and unbelief of, unbelief of men without undermining our accountability, I do not fully understand, and I don't either. At this point, I claim Deuteronomy 29, verse 29, where he says, The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things revealed belong to us and to the generations after us that we may obey and be faithful. This is one of those secret things I cannot unpack for you how God sovereignly, unconditionally elects some to salvation and yet we are completely responsible for our own decisions. Again, Piper says this, if this stretches your mind, I love this, if this stretches your mind to the breaking point, better that your mind be broken than the scriptures be broken. Let us just trust scripture. Finally, let's back up to verse 11 here to get to Paul's purpose for this. We covered part of verse 11 earlier. The first of it, the beginning of it, we covered the end of it, but I want to focus on the middle of that verse now as we close. Paul says, "Though, Though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. Why does God save us in this way? Why does does he save us by sovereignly and freely and unconditionally electing us to himself? In order that God's purpose and election might continue. And what is God's purpose? What is his purpose in electing us, sinners to the core, to be recipients of God's sovereign saving grace? His purpose in in that is that we sinners transformed by this grace might be a display of his glorious grace. Paul put it this way to the Ephesians. Let me read from Ephesians chapter 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. And what's the purpose of his will in all this? To the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. And that's exactly what happens, church. When we realize how incredibly unworthy we are, how rebellious we have been, and how incredibly deserving we are of judgment, 
And yet, God has been so incredibly gracious to set his electing love on us that we might not get what we deserve. And by simple believing faith, we are transformed from sinners into saints, from enemies of God into children of God, into this, grafted into this spiritual, true Israel. And when this happens, it happens according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace. So what is our application to this? Number one, I want to encourage you to wrestle with this. Wrestle with this until God makes sense of this for you. Don't just take my spoon-fed presuppositions as fact. Wrestle. Wrestle with God over this. Secondly, be assured that whether or not you agree with my interpretation of this particular passage, if you have placed your faith in Jesus Christ as your only hope to be rescued from what you and I deserve, then based on God's promises, you are a child of God and he will keep you to the end, regardless of whether you agree with me. His promises still stand because his promises were made to true Israel and his promises are still intact. And so all that goodness, all that gospeliciousness in chapter 8 is still true. There is therefore now no condemnation for you who are in Christ Jesus and nothing will be able to separate you from the love of God in Christ. Rejoice in that. And finally, If God has set his electing love on you and you have responded in faith, then let me remind you why this has happened. Let us not just wallow in pride over this. We have nothing to be prideful for. There's nothing about us that that in any way constrain God to select us. Nothing whatsoever. But let us remind ourselves why he did this. He did this according to the purpose of his will so that we might be to the praise of his glorious grace. And so, if you are a follower of Christ this morning, be to the praise of his glorious grace. Let the light of Christ that has given you new life shine from inside of you to a lost and dying and dark world who desperately needs this good news. Let that light shine before them so God may be praised by them as well. Be to the praise of his glorious grace. Let's pray.